Hi, I'm Daniel Labubo, and you're listening to a Dig It Magazine audio. Where there's an article, there's a podcast. And on this first episode, we're going to be diving into the online conspiracy theory group, QAnon. just heard is President Trump speaking at the White House with his top generals. And then he says something quite cryptic. He says this could be the calm before the storm. The calm before the storm. And no one in the room really seems to know what he's talking about. What storm? Media doesn't understand. His generals are just as confused. And just like that, a conspiracy theory is born. It's January 10, 2020. And to start, I just want to tell a small story about Barack Obama. This is in the year 2014, and he's giving a live press conference about U.S. um, response to the Islamic State in Syria. And shortly after, a controversy starts. And it comes from politicians and civilians and it's positive and negative but the issue at hand is obama's unpresidential tan suit scandalous and the reason why i bring this up is that it kind of shows this contrast this shift in political discourse in the public sphere from then till now as you previously heard President Trump says this cryptic message in front of his generals. No one knows what he says. He doesn't even explain what he means by the storm. But everyone just kind of accepts that that's what the president's like. And no one holds him to a higher standard. Now, the danger with having a president that isn't held to an, in quotation marks, presidential standard is that he or she can say things without consequence. Just like what Trump did with that storm business. See, you notice the sudden pivot in how we perceive the presidency and how these examples that we've lived by with other past presidents are just kind of 
thrown out the window. Donald Trump just blatantly sows paranoia now amongst American people. And he's allowed to do this unscathed, unchallenged, and unimpeded. Now, this results in this calm before the storm appearing on the infamous image board website 4chan. And it's under an anonymous poster, simply under the alias Q. And this anonymous individual says that Trump is working on something to arrest Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama. Of course, Soros is in there because he's got to be if it's a conspiracy theory against the Democrats. And the reason why is that they've been committing these heinous crimes that Trump is going to expose to the world, that the Democrats have been, you know, having pedophilic sex rings with kids. And this kind of gains traction amongst the conspiracy theorist communities that already exist, that already subscribe to the idea of a deep state that's secretly running this government. And this new following is kind of dubbed QAnon after the anonymity of this Q individual. So it's Q Anonymous. No one knows who Q is. Apparently, some people say that Q is JFK, who never died, faked his death, and now is on 4chan. Yeah. Now, with social media being what it is, QAnon spreads from 4chan to many other social media networks. YouTube, Facebook, Twitter, some parts of Reddit. Keep in mind that QAnon followers are tech-savvy individuals, and they know their way around the back ends of the online world. But the question that I'm always baffled by is just how does the QAnon movement utilize social media to its benefit? Because evidently, they've done a pretty solid job. They've managed to go from a 4chan post to being part of essentially mainstream media. People know who they are now. So we're just going to head right on and just explore and see how QAnon manages to essentially retain and gain more numbers. And one thing I found really interesting was this power dynamic that exists in the QAnon world. So Q, or whoever Q is at least, relishes in this anonymity that these image board websites like 4chan and 8chan allow. And from a distance, Q can bring out new posts daily that are just kind of random and gibberish. But what it does is that it allows viewers, followers, to essentially make meaning out of this jumble. And so when you are feeding these conspiracy theorists with, you know, random information, it kind of piques their interest. And QAnon has been compared to alternate reality games, ARGs, because the real world is made the video game when it comes to QAnon. You're trying to lift this veil that you can discover what the real world is like.
And I have come to the conclusion that perhaps this is what makes people feel enticed to join this movement. You know, Pia Varis, one of our lecturers, spoke about conspiracy theories and why people take part in them. And this is how I came to that conclusion as well, that there is this level of, of, of people feeling special, that they have, you know, been able to take this famous red pill and awoken into this world that nobody else has. At least a select few of QAnon followers have, but everyone else is asleep or has chosen to take this blue pill and stay hidden from the realities. And I mean the real realities, not the one that George Soros wants you to see, but the one that Donald Trump is trying to show you with the coming of this storm. But one thing I've noticed is that QAnon can be seen as a kind of narrator in this. So what they do, whoever they are, is that they drop these pieces of a puzzle that they want regular people to piece together. So this can be like random dates, random numbers, and you just leave it to these people playing this this game to make sense of. Now these puzzle pieces are called crumbs and the audience puts these crumbs together. The ones that really try to make sense out of these crumbs are called bakers. And so you can visualize this as these bakers are collecting crumbs and forming a loaf of some sort of truth with these crumbs. Making something out of nothing is how I like to call it. Because in the end, the things that QAnon has prophesized just haven't happened. They just haven't. And they have nothing to show for it. Yet they still have one hell of a following. We'll be right back after this break. Welcome back. So in the first half, we discussed this whole idea of baking. And I want to give you an example of baking with the former FBI director, James Comey. So he takes part in this challenge on Twitter. It's called the Five Jobs I've Had Challenge. And people simply just list the five jobs that they've previously had. So for James Comey, that's grocery store clerk, vocalist soloist for a church wedding, chemist, 
strike replacement high school teacher and FBI director. And QAnon members look into this and say, you know what, this is a very bizarre tweet. Now, to everybody else's eyes, this is a normal tweet, just following a meme or a trend. But they look at this and they see that, you know, in five jobs I've had, there are a few key letters here that trip and alert. Now, the J in job, the I in I've, and the H-A-D in had, that spells jihad. So they say five jihads, and then they look at the first letter of each of his occupations. And grocery, G, vocalist, V, chemist, C, strike, S, F, for FBI. And that spells out, coincidentally, Grass Valley Charter School Foundation. Now, this school is having a fundraiser. And suddenly, they get calls that there is an impending attack, false flag attack by the Democrats on this high school. And so the fundraiser is canceled because there is fear that something might actually happen. But the QAnon people that are calling are saying that they know this from a, well, credible, how would I say, credible uh, operative. But it's really just a baker who has identified a couple letters that happen to spell out jihad and GVCSF is a possibly popular acronym that could mean many different things. But this shows just how flimsy baking is. It's finding clues where none exist. As human beings, we are kind of hardwired to constantly try and find patterns and clues. But in this tweet, there just isn't anything to trip a false flag alert that a school's going to be attacked. So I had the idea that, you know what, maybe I should bake. So let's bake. Let's bake like a true QAnon baker. So let's get going. We're going to add 10 ounces of basis accusations, 100 grams of random wordplay, maybe a dash of acrostic poetry, two tablespoons of random coincidences. If you're feeling really, really lucky, toss in some Sudoku squares. You know what? Fold it up with a Rubik's Cube. And finally, 17 cups of salt when you realize that this builds up to nothing and all of these coincidences are just random and by the way did you know that the 17th letter in the alphabet is Q coincidence I think so that's exactly what it is it just happens to be like that moving on to other things QAnon's tendrils spread across the shadowy recesses of the internet 8chan, 4chan. However, they also operate on the more accessible networks. Facebook, Twitter, Reddit. Well, not Reddit anymore. They were banned from that for inciting violence. I happened to stumble across a breeding ground, or a group at least, on Facebook called QAnon PDX. It boasts 2.4 thousand followers. Not that much, but there's a lot of QAnon groups on Facebook. 
QAnon memes are shared here and reactions are made by ad- both administrators and followers. And the entire feed is full of crumbs from 4chan with replies that bakers have you know, molded into some form of bread. Essentially, this is just a more sanitized version of what happens in the darker, more extreme ends of the internet. I began to notice a pattern here. So we live in this digitalized age where there's so much accessible data, maybe too much, and that's the problem. So QAnon capitalizes on credibility. They know that we live in the post-truth era where facts carry less power as to personal beliefs and emotive responses. This creates a perfect breeding ground for QAnon especially in a society in the United States that's so polarized by parties. QAnon can sell radical ideas to individuals who are steadfast in political affiliations. These targets become easy pickings to radical ideas that Hillary Clinton and Obama are part of a child sex trafficking scheme. This makes it a whole lot more palatable as it plays along the political party lines. So a Republican is okay with subscribing to QAnon ideas and memes because he's already on one side of the aisle. Because the public sphere is so drifted apart, so separated, that one person is actually able to look at a meme that says something as heinous as this and say, yeah, I can see that. And this takes us to the memes. So the Facebook page is full of memes because memes are a very cost-effective way to spread an ideology. They, well, are easy to make, can be made in an instant. There's a common theme in QAnon memes. There is always Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton, and they are always in some we are form either imprisoned or being knocked over as domino pieces. Trump is there. He's very big, imposing, strong. And he is the one that's kind of liberating everyone out of this sleep and slumber that we've been going through. Done by George Soros. What I find interesting is that for individuals that follow an anonymous entity like QAnon, their theorists enjoy notoriety sometimes. Digital issue mapping is a method to locate prominent networks and actors within an internet sphere. And within the QAnon sphere, there are some very prominent actors. One in particular is Jordan Sather. Now, Jordan Sather has a YouTube account that boasts more than 200,000 followers. He is a rallying point for a skeptic to maybe become a member, or at least a believer, in the QAnon cause. Now, he takes part in algorithmic populism, so lots of hashtags, lots of hashtag QAnons, and hashtag the Great Awakenings, lots of awakening going on. And he's just trying to push the algorithms to just ensure that he has a lot of uptake from other people. Uh, so what I noticed was while I was using this uh, this software called CrowdTangle, which shows you 
the uptake of different uh, websites that you visit. So for instance, if I was to read a QAnon article by The Guardian, I can see who shared it. And in many of these, Jordan would be present. And he would have a massive uptick. He would be at the top of the leaderboard when it comes to the amount of reactions that he brings by sharing this on Twitter. And I noticed that he is kind of a figurehead in the QAnon community and is looked up to. He makes a lot of big accusations with the retweets and he likes to refute a lot of, of the messages and sentiment that goes on in a lot of these, well, mainstream media websites that report on QAnon. Now, commitment-wise, Jordan Sather is dedicated to the QAnon cause. In a video, he claims he first discovered QAnon through Twitter, and then he started subscribing to the idea. And by doing so, he joins the ranks, because the QAnon structure is Q at the top, then dominant actors like Jordan, and then under that you have these, these bakers. And they're the ones cropping up the story from the crumbs. And under that, you have these loose cannons and readers. They're the people that may show up to a pizzeria with a gun to free traffic people because a baker told them that that was there. To sum things up, QAnon and its followers pose a great threat to the United States. The ability of QAnon members to take action in their own hands and to harm is becoming self-evident. This goes to show that social media allows for an entity like QAnon to choreograph to its audience, to take action in the offline world. QAnon uses social media as a rallying point where it can recruit and install a false sense of wokeness to reality. Memes are weaponized to carry hateful speech and push forward an agenda based off of, well, unchecked false truths. QAnon members like Jordan Sather shortened the descent from a skeptic to an extremist. QAnon knows how to play the social media game, and it does it effectively. QAnon is evidently a force to be reckoned with and should not be taken with. If you'd like to read the full article this podcast supports, head to digitmagazine.com. This podcast was done as an assignment for the Reading and Writing in Online Culture course. I'd like to thank Blaine CJ, Eglia Telandite, Federica Morgandi, and Iduna Prestor for their unwavering moral support in the making of this podcast. Be sure to check out other podcasts on digitmagazine.com. Lastly, our music is by the wonderful Pola Inu, or Fingerspit, the composer of the original soundtrack for the Red Strings Club. Thank you so much for letting us use your music. It was greatly appreciated. A link to her discography will be made available. You're listening to Digit Audio. I've been Daniel Lobubo, and thank you for listening.